This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. I'm Christopher Rice. <laughs> I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. <laughs> and you're listening to Christopher and Eric. Oh, don't make it a competition. I was just trying to out <laughs> to out dulcet it tone I you. To. <laughs> I was trying to. There have been so many comments of late about the vocal stylings I adopt when doing well, our intro that I thought I'd really you just lean do in, your as they say. Thing, and then a couple of episodes, you did one weird thing, and then last time you were trying to do a different weird thing. But this is my favorite. The um. Uh, hypersexual romantic announcer voice. I, I really, this, this one is really, the, this is a keeper. A tone that could not be less appropriate for what we are eventually going to discuss today as soon as we stop with the all this talk about ourselves and all our voices. All this silliness and can't that really informs almost all of our podcasts all the time because what's more fun to talk about than yourself? I Absolutely. ask you. Absolutely. It's why podcasts were invented. How can we talk about ourselves only louder? I think it's the only reason that the species learned to talk, to communicate in the first place. Is that what you think? Is so that you your could hot talk, take, So we could talk Eric about Shockwin. ourselves. Because otherwise, Absolutely. you know, a few grunts and points and you get dinner or sex and, you know, you're moving <laughs> on. But like, if it, if we've moved beyond um, the hierarchy of needs and we're just talking about, well, what I think about everything is just this. Um <laughs> Eric Shaw Quinn, philosophy major, if you couldn't tell. A minor. I was a philosophy minor. I was was like, quite a silence in response to that one. Is is a secret about to be revealed? I was a theater major. Right. That's right. Well, I just theater major with a philosophy minor. And I was accidentally a philosophy minor. You are you majored in theatrical philosophy. How does that sound? Let's combine absolutely that's perfect. That sounds very much like me. Absolutely. All right. Enough about us. I mean, because honestly. Oh well, I'm sorry. I I have to go. (laughs) No, I. So I'll I'll send you this question then to keep you here because it is really about you. Uh, We are going to talk about this True Crime TV Club again this week in this episode. We do it every other week. We're going to talk about a very well-known case here in the United States. And I just want to ask you before we begin, how much, if anything, did you know about this case before you watched this episode of Vanity Fair Confidential, season one, episode eight? I, I have to say almost nothing. Like you knew I knew the nothing. I knew the broad strokes of it, but like it was such a salacious news uh, story. I didn't really I didn't base in it. I'm not. That's never been like John Benet Ramsey. I have a general until recently. I had a very general sort of knowledge of um, what happened to her. I will say these the disappearing kids. Um, Vallow isn't that her name? 
This is the more recent story, Chad Daybell and Lori Vallow. Yeah, yeah. That is one of the few exceptions for me where I have actually been, because I wanted to know what happened to those kids. I'm sorry that it turned out to be so tragic. I'm not surprised, Um, but it's still tragic. But usually with this, I'll get a general sort of notion, and so much of everything else is everybody's speculation that I just sort of drop out because I don't mm-hmm. want to I don't want to baste in it. I don't want to stew in um the horror of it. This is such a terrible terrible sad story. And it's every parent's worst nightmare. I sort of steamed fast our usual true crime TV club disclaimers. If you want to watch the episode of television we're going to discuss on this episode, now would be the time. Pause the podcast and go look for Vanity Fair Confidential is the series name. The episode title is Natalie Holloway, Lost in Paradise. The episode is episode eight of season one. The Natalie Holloway case, as we have made clear, was big, big news for a very long time here in the United States. It was part of, and we'll get to this as we break down the episode, it was part of a rash of what was called missing white women's stories that I think were fueled largely by the rise of 24-hour cable news. We definitely know that the Lacey Peterson case, which was a famous murder case, was about that. It was also about the the sort of rise of uh, of needing to do something in the wake of it was it happened around 9/11 and people needed something else to fixate on that audience did. Elizabeth Smart's kidnapping was another story like this, although that came God. to a much happier ending. She was discovered was so and reunited insane. with her family. Yes. Uh, there is we should one watch other one of her shows. Isn't yeah, she we doing should. her own thing. We should watch some of her stuff. But there's another one I'm forgetting. It was Natalie Holloway, Lacey Peterson, Elizabeth Smart, and I feel like there's another, a sort of grown, missing... God, there was that horrible story where that man had a whole house full of them, but I think that's actually been relatively recent. I think that was more recently. Anyway, this was this story broke and was all anybody could talk about, and it really was every parent's worst nightmare, as somebody describes it in the course of the episode. So It absolutely, the worst thing you could possibly imagine happening... To your child. Yeah. yeah. To your, let's say to your To child. anybody so, in your life, but certainly to your child, because like, I always think one of the things that um, is true of say uncle is there's a sequence where um, the gay man who's raising the child in the this book. This would be, be clear, your novel, a novel say uncle, that I wrote called say uncle, yes, absolutely. Um, which is the story of a gay man raising um, a child and his decision to, you know, the moment where you have to send your kid to school like, oh. that is very much my experience. Like, okay, you're six. See ya. You know, there's the big yellow thing. Go get on it. I'll see you later this afternoon. Bye-bye. I, I just, mm-hmm. I can't imagine. That alone must be unbelievably terrifying. I'm still uncomfortable that my little brother drives and he's 50-something years old. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's yeah. it's too late to be uncomfortable about it. And the idea of, like, Sending your college age kid off to, you know, okay, bye, go to Aruba. And then here's you what never I thought, see her again. Oh, here's what God. I thought of. On our last episode, we talked a lot about people's memories of their favorite summer. And so we were commenting so many of the summers were when I was 19. I discovered myself. I fell in love. I left home for the first time. What we're about to describe, what we think happened to Natalie Holloway, because spoiler alert, we still really don't know. 
happened at that very moment in life. She was 18 years old. She had just graduated from high school. She was going on a summer graduation trip to Aruba with a group of her friends. Her mother was sort of letting her go, as you just described, out right. into the world. So, And that's a brave choice to begin with. Okay, bye, have fun in Aruba. And then, you know, like this is the worst case scenario, the worst that you can imagine. This is it. This episode, however, does not begin in Aruba, and it does not begin with Natalie's disappearance. It begins in Miraflores, Peru, which is described as an upscale cosmopolitan and, quote, I'm quoting the episode here, Europeanized area of Lima, I believe. It's part of the city. I wasn't entirely clear on, on that, if it was a neighboring city or what. I don't know. It was. I thought it was like a a gambling district or something, a resort district. There, right. there was a casino involved, so... On May 30th, 2010, a 21-year-old local girl named Stephanie Flores is visiting the Atlantic City Casino. I think it's one of three very large casinos in the area. She is described as an attractive college student. Her father is described as a well-known political candidate, which feels like a summary description of someone with maybe a more complex resume than the show has time to get into. (laughs) It's not really a show about him or even her. So, yeah. Uh, It's late, and Stephanie has won a lot of money. As they say, if you win a lot of money in a casino, it draws a lot of attention to you. But unfortunately, Stephanie goes missing. She doesn't return home the next morning. Her family panics, but they can't file a missing persons report for 24 hours. We know how that story goes. Stephanie is technically a grown-up. She's 21. It it there's got right there's got to be because a threshold the first other than age. Hours, the yeah. first twenty four hours is the most crucial time for a missing person, and if we're ruling out make taking any action during that time, it but seems it makes like, me it makes me wonder this: how many people aren't actually legitimately missing who are right? It's like the cops came up with this rule for a reason, and I think it's primarily bureaucratic. They get deluged with missing persons report, people who are panicking, and it turns out the person's a grown up who just doesn't want to be found, and this is what or they're strange, just late. Or they're being stalked, like you don't know. Anyway, okay. Uh her family, Stephanie's family, knows the casino owners. So after they discover her abandoned car, another near the tip casino, as to what sort of lo- candidate her father was. A very prominent local businessman, apparently. They're able to, because of this relationship, pull the surveillance video, and it shows Stephanie and a young, white, and very tall man leaving the casino together. A casino employee recognizes the man in the video through one of the man's winning tickets because he was playing at the casino the night before as well. His name is on it, and while no one there recognizes the name, he is infamous here in the United States. His name is, and I have to, I'm going to say it, Euron Vandersloot. Vandersloot. The episode flashes back to May 30th, well, don't they Google him? And they that's how they go flashback. They, the people, the, the police in Lima Google him, and suddenly who this guy is opens before them because they see that he is internationally famous. And Into we flash back to... May 30th, 2005. Uh, we are in Mountain Brook, Alabama. Beth Holloway gets a phone call telling her that her 18-year-old daughter, Natalie, is missing. 
Natalie went on a graduation trip to Aruba with her classmates and several what it sounds like are grown-up chaperones, which for a trip full of 18-year-olds is maybe a wise choice, but maybe also not a legal requirement. And one of the chaperones has called Beth to say, this is the day they're supposed to fly home. Natalie has not turned up. We then flash back into some backstory on Natalie's life and her relationship with her mother. In 2000, her parents separated. Uh, Natalie moved to Mountain Brook to live with her mother and her brother. She's described as a very bright, ambitious, and focused young woman who wants to be a doctor. She's not a party girl. She was a straight-A student. This is not like her, as just as we've heard with Stephanie Flores back in 2010, or I should say ahead in 2010, it's not like these women not to be in touch with their loved ones or to not let people know where they're going or who they are with. The chaperones and students in Aruba have gathered and basically realized that Natalie has not been seen by anyone since the night before when there was, in fact, a lot of drinking. Um, that said, she's not a party girl, which actually I think adds to their fear because if right. this was the night she really let her hair down. She maybe doesn't have a lot of party tricks. She doesn't know a lot of good decisions to she's make around. She's not good about drinking. She doesn't have yeah. a lot of experience with it. And she's too young to be drinking anyway. I don't know what the drinking age is in Aruba, but they were like 17-year-olds in that bar. I'm like, hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm from Louisiana, so I don't try not to get too harumphy right. about it. But, you know, wow, that seems like a problem. The bar is called Carlos and Charlie's. It's popular with the locals and with tourists. Uh, all of her friends, Natalie's friends, remember a local teenager being in their presence or kind of around all night. And they say they got a weird feeling from him that he had two friends with him. And at the end of the night, all three of these men and Natalie got into a silver Honda and drove away. And if we could just take a pause here, ladies, mm -hmm. may I just say at the end of a night of drinking, getting into a car with three men that you've never met before is never a good idea. Even if they're yeah. great guys, you know, take an Uber, meet them there. Something like that. Three men, one girl. We're all drunk. We've never met before. That just does not sound like that's the beginning of the tragedy here. It's like that's a really bad judgment call. Yeah, I really like the never be outnumbered rule when you're drinking yeah. with strangers is probably a good plan. Like never be outnumbered. Yeah. Three strangers of any know. sex, yeah. really, but certainly three, a woman and three men. I just she was five, four hundred and ten pounds, maybe I, she was, mm -hmm. you know, little slip of a girl and young woman and climbs into this car with these anyway. And the story unfolds. Beth Holloway and four close friends rush to catch a flight to Aruba. Aruba is shocked by the spreading story of this disappearance. The last time a tourist was killed there, and they, at this point they don't believe Natalie was necessarily killed, but the last killing that was documented there was two robbers shot and killed an American woman. Uh, that said, tourists go missing all the time. This is what we were talking about just now. The police won't accept a missing persons report in this case, for 48 hours, which, again, says to me how many people walk into the police station there trying to report somebody missing. I'm not uh -huh. saying that's a reason to keep the rule, but I, I think its origins are probably pretty clear. Um, Beth Holloway mentions, and this is the point in the story, and again, because I don't know a lot about the story, I think Beth Holloway is very, very wealthy. <laughs> Uh 
I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash the dinner party show. No, I meant in the car. So this is the point in the special where I think we're starting to get some hits that uh, Beth Holloway is a very wealthy woman with a lot of resources at her disposal, and that's going to become important. She flies into a but private she's airport. also a remarkable person. I was mm-hmm. really, I, I, you know, it's early in the game, but I was became more and more and more impressed with her as this story unfolded. Yes, I did too. I absolutely did. I think she's definitely the hero of the piece. I mean, lands boots on the ground with four friends of hers ready to find her daughter and saying, I'm not leaving Aruba until I find my daughter. And um, has done 24 hours of investigating by the time we get to the 48-hour rules, and you'll see, uh, very effectively. What did you think about the Aruban air handlers? This was a detail of the story that I wanted to be fleshed out a little bit more. She flies into a private airport. She meets these three Aruban air handlers who basically become her primary investigators. They say, we will help you find your daughter. I imagine maybe they were being compensated or not, but it just seemed sure. like it was it was a bit much for three people who basically work at the airport to say, we're going to begin an investigation of Natalie's disappearance. That said, what soon becomes clear is that all of Aruba is committed and even desperate to find Natalie because this makes them look very, very bad. They're a tourist definite, uh, destination. They're not a very big island. Yeah, they don't and the want cancellations probably started the day that this hit the news. Right. So they question the classmates who were with Natalie at the bar, and they remember the name of the guy they got a weird feeling from, and it is our friend from the opening, Joran Vandersloot. Uh, students make it clear that Natalie thought Joran was dreamy, that she was really kind of into him. And maybe that combined with the alcohol had led to some not good choices. So they go to the Holiday Inn where they were all staying and the night clerk recognizes the guy that they're describing and says, oh yeah, I know Joran. He's a Dutch Marine who basically preys on young women or he looks like a Dutch Marine. I think that's how they describe him. And the mother says, oh, great. So my daughter was last seen in the company of a guy who preys on women. The Reuben air handlers locate the car. This is the silver Honda that she was spotted driving away in and the license plate number. And this actually leads them to the full name of the guy. At this point, they're just looking for Joran. Now it's Joran Vandersloot. Uh, we then get some background information on Joran. He was born in the Netherlands. He's the youngest of three boys. He's a good student. His mom is a teacher. The family is well known on the island of Aruba. Um, But that said, he is not actually the owner of the uh, silver Honda. Hold on. Did I skip a page in my fucking show notes? I'm always being sabotaged. That seems about right. I'm not following, but yeah, maybe. The Honda is actually owned by two brothers, Depak Kalpo and his brother Satish. And these are the two other friends that the uh, that Natalie's friends remember seeing in Carlos and Charlie's on the night of her disappearance. Right. The Honda is parked outside of the Vandersloot home. 
So what does Beth do? She goes right to that door and she I am telling knocks. you, Beth is my, I mean, I want Beth in my corner. She is yeah. great. I mean, if she works as an agent, I may hire her. Right. Uh, out comes Joran's father, Paul Vandersloot. He says, we don't know anything about this. Out comes Joran. He does the same, says the same. And then suddenly Joran is like, oh, 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 wait. No, no, no. I remember Natalie. Yeah, that's right. Me and the Calpo brothers, we drove her to a lighthouse on the northwest tip of the island because Natalie wanted to see sharks. He says she was incredibly drunk. She wanted to have a lot of sex with him. And she kept referring to her mother as Hitler. He goes on to say she performed oral sex on him and that she was so drunk he had to take her back to the hotel. My understanding is that he said all of this to the, to Beth Holloway. To Beth, yes. And like in front of his house. Natalie's friends say all of this is nonsense. She never called her mother Hitler. She would never say those things. She wasn't like that. She would not force herself on him in this way. Uh, but Joran says, here's what I'll do. She's talking to Beth Holloway now. He says, I'll take you back to the Holiday Inn and I'll point out the security guards that saw me drop Natalie off. And on top of this, he's described, he's given an account of dropping Natalie off at this hotel that's incredibly detailed. He says she fell several times. She hit her head. Two security guards came to help. They all go to the back to the hotel together. They think they're going to get answers. And he you, knows what her hotel is. So it's, you know, information. It's a credible story about you know, details from, if it's not credible for her, it's credible details from her actual visit to Aruba and her daughter. Exactly. But they go to the hotel. Joran says, I don't recognize the guards who are here. Sorry, they must not be working tonight. I imagine he makes a quick escape with his father. Beth is not done. Beth goes to the hotel and she gets them to turn over their surveillance footage from the lobby they I mean, watch. this is before anybody has been allowed to talk to the police. She's yeah. already at the point of getting security footage from the hotel um, to verify this uh, the alibi of this guy who's just told her this story. They watch hours and hours of tape. No sign of Natalie. No Never evidence turns at up. all of the story that Joran has told them. The whole story appears to be fabricated. The last man that Natalie has seen alive has just told them a story that appears to be a tissue of lies. So the police, based off of this, bring Joran and the Calpo brothers in for questioning. The men stick to their story. They drove to the lighthouse. They brought her back to the Holiday Inn. She was drunk, drunk, drunk. They've got no evidence. They've got nothing else to go on. The men are released. But... The point here, I think, is the men bring them in because the next the, that day, now that the sun is up, it's been 48 hours. So she goes in to the police to report her daughter missing for the first time with uh, this footage, with this story, with interviews, with suspects, with the whole mm-hmm. the guy's name. Like all they have to do is pick them up. That's really amazing. This is a place that she's never been before in her life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And all of this has already happened in 24 hours. Meanwhile, the search for Natalie on the island of Aruba is beginning at the hands of the people who actually live on the island of Aruba. They say a third of the people who live there come out to search 70 square miles of land that compose the entire island. Tips start to pour in. Someone says, I saw several men and a blonde-haired woman next to this pond. 
They search the entire pond. They dredge the pond. Nothing is turned up. Another tip comes in saying, I saw three men in a, burying a blonde woman's body in a landfill. The landfill is searched. Nothing is found. Beth has essentially, because, she, because the police have released the men after what she sees as questioning that was too brief, she is now going to the media herself to put intense pressure on the Aruban police to arrest Jordan Vandersloot, Joran Vandersloot, thank you, autocorrect, for always changing his name in these show notes, Joran Vandersloot, Depak, and Satish Kalpo. Um, they are eventually arrested. No charges are immediately filed, and they are put in a cell. Now, the goal here of the police apparently was to divide the two camps. They believed that by imprisoning all of them separately, they could get the brothers to stand together and turn against Joran. And that, I think, is basically what began to happen. The stories they begin to tell start to differ. Differ, excuse me. Joran is now saying he actually <laughs> left Natalie on the beach and walked home, which is a they huge They left them there together, and then he left, and then he walked home. Yeah, the Calpo brothers are now saying they left Joran and Natalie at the beach together, right? And Joran is saying, yes, and then I left Natalie at the beach. So suddenly... Natalie was not driven back to the Holiday Inn Select. She didn't fall down several times. No security guards helped her. It's, it's a total change in story. So that said, weeks pass as they remain in custody, but no charges are filed. So Beth Holloway reaches out to an American private investigator named Harold Copas, who is an investigator, um, who is an interview subject, I'm sorry, in this hour of television. Now, here's the part where I felt like I wish we had longer than an hour because what Harold allegedly turns up some speculative, I'm not going to call it evidence, but let's say hearsay about, is that Joran's father has Chicago mob ties. And Harold's theory, based on his... Well, you're making a hand gesture. You don't believe any of this? I think this is bunkum. I think All right, this well, is tell bullshit. me why. Tell me why, because I'm, I'm, bl- I'm slurring too many words. I'm reading too fast. <laughs> well, because of who the father was, you know what I mean? Like there is no, there's nothing revealed about the father that would indicate that would put him in a position to be, you know, a made man. Right. There's nothing about his career. There's nothing about his participation. There's nothing about, I actually think, I don't know, maybe I should save that for my conclusion. Okay, save it because let me, let me wrap up what the speculation is. The speculation yeah, go is ahead Warren went to his dad. But- and his dad had connected because his dad was connected with the Chicago mob, which I don't know what kind of presence they have in Aruba or what they were doing there. They went well, to why the they beach. would be any more help than anybody Joran's, else. Joran said to his dad, I left this girl out there. She's probably dead. You need to call your friends and they need to get rid of the body. The theory being that they placed the body in a fisherman's cage and dropped it off the reef. Um, the, the area where the fishermen cages are are actually searched and they don't get any hit. So nothing really substantial ever comes of this theory okay i just wanted to finish that point yeah and nothing other than the the guy speculating that he's part that he's a made man with the chicago mob which he might be but nothing other than him saying that is provided as part of the story on december 23rd jordan and the calpo brothers are released the next day three months after her daughter disappeared beth holloway leaves aruba breaking her promise that she would not leave Aruba before she found out what happened to Natalie. She still doesn't know what happened to Natalie, but she feels like she's got a pretty damn good idea. She knows what happened to Natalie. She knows perfectly. Everybody knows what happened to Natalie. They just can't prove it. Joran Vandersloot releases a book 
in which he maintains his innocence and he proceeds to give countless paid interviews about the crime. And then always paid summer 2008. He reaches out to Fox News and says he's going to tell them the real story of what happened to Natalie for the price of $25,000. And this is, he reaches out to Greta Van Susteren, who I don't know if she, I don't watch Fox News. I don't know if she's still on Fox News or not. I think she just left in the last year or so. She accepts the offer. Uh, They travel to Euron or they meet somewhere. They set up the interview. Camera's rolling. Euron tells a story in which he sold Natalie to a man from Venezuela took her to the beach where the lighthouse was, left her there, and got his money. Once the interview is over, everyone said their goodbyes. Joran says sends Greta Van Susteren a text message saying, everything I just told you was a lie. Sorry, I need the money. <laughs> so he swindles Fox News out of $25,000. Right. What a great guy. Fox airs the interview with a disclosure of what happened at the end. They said they wanted to reveal what a sociopath he was. But nothing else gets done on the case. It's spring 2010, five years after Beth has left Aruba. She gets an email from Euron. This one says he has Natalie's remains, or he knows where they're located, and he'll sell them to her for $250,000. I mean, what a charmer. What a a monster. So she has to make a down payment in order to even begin the process of $15,000 or something. Something like that. But I think what Beth sees in this is the potential to catch Euron in the act of extortion. Because if the FBI can get him on that, if he's trying to extort an American citizen, then they can try to get him extradited. So yeah, Beth, pretend- Beth's reaction to this is is kind of priceless. She was like, I didn't think he knew it was going to show me where the remains were. And I didn't believe any of this nonsense and whatever. But I did think it was a great chance to trap him. So I involved the FBI like she is really a savvy cookie. I don't know what her backstory is, but she is I, continues to be impressive. Yes. So she has her lawyer record a phone conversation with Euron in which Euron once more changes his story and says that at the beach where he drove Natalie to, he and Natalie got into a fight, again, because she didn't want him to leave because Joran is so irresistible and amazing. He hit her over the head with a rock. She died. He panicked. He called his dad. He said the two of them disposed of the body underneath a house that was under construction or in the construction site of a house, I should say. Beth's attorney travels to Aruba to go, gives, meets with Joran, gives him part of the money, goes to the house, the local police look up the history of the property and find out there's nothing to support Joran's account that the house was under construction at the time. And so this story appears to be a lie. We now get to one of the strangest parts of the whole thing. (laughs) 
I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Christopher and Eric is a production of the TDPS Network, which mm. you can support by visiting thedinnerpartyshow.com or www.tdps.tv. And by clicking on the gold Amazon box at the bottom right-hand corner of the home page, you'll ensure a portion of your subsequent Amazon purchases supports podcasts like this one. The same is true if you use any of the buy links on our website as well. And thedinnerpartyshow.com and tdps.tv is also where you can find all the episodes of our other podcast, The Dinner Party Show, which is full of celebrity interviews and sketch comedy that's gotten us banned in 20 states. That's not true. A man can dream. All right. Well, let's dream of everyone supporting our website. That way we can avoid putting an ad in this spot for a crowdsourced skin surgery hour. Okay, so we're now at what I think is one of the strangest and most unresolved parts of the story. Beth Holloway has... there are a lot of them. There are a lot of them, but this is the one where it's like, I want to read the book version of this. Yoren is trying to extort Natalie Holloway's mother, Beth, by saying he, he, he will tell her where they buried Natalie's body. He's claiming he did kill her by hitting her over the head with a rock. Beth's lawyer travels to Aruba to meet with Yoren, hoping to As be led to... As a sting operation to right. trap him into extorting money for the, um, false information and whatever. Because if the FBI can get Yoren in the midst of extorting an American citizen, they can extradite him. They basically do get Yoren in the midst of of trying to extort an American citizen, and for reasons which are still. Do. And this is 2010. I don't know when this episode was recorded, but I think it was recently. The FBI chooses not to arrest Yoren for reasons that are still not clear no, to Beth Holloway. No, it's not the FBI. It's the local authorities because the FBI has no authority in Aruba. They would need for the local authorities to arrest Yoren so they could then have him extradited oh my God. to the United yeah. States. And then the FBI says this is still an open case and they won't comment on it. That was but, the thing. They but it's, won't but speak it's about the Aruban, it. Yeah. But it's the Aruban authorities who elect not to arrest urine long enough that urine leaves the country. Yeah. Oh, this story and what Beth Holloway went through. Okay. We're back to May 2010. We're back to a hotel in Peru, close to the casino where Stephanie Flores went missing. The hotel staff at the hotel tack is cleaning up and in one of the rooms, they find a lifeless body of a young woman. Her neck has been snapped. She has been beaten, and she's covered in blood. She is identified as Stephanie Flores, the woman that the, her family was looking for her at the top of the episode. They pull video from the hotel surveillance camera, and there is Stephanie entering a hotel room with Joran van der Sloot. The room is registered to him. They have him on tape leaving the hotel the next morning, shortly before the body is found and leaving the hotel as if, you know, he's just rushing to cash his flight. The Peruvian police go bananas. They make a full court press. Uh, a guard at a border crossing catches urine in a cab about to leave the country, it sounds like. Um, yes, he was it, headed into Chile. Yeah. They've got him. It sounds pretty much dead to rights. They've got the surveillance camera footage of him leaving the hotel room, of him going in with Stephanie. He claims self-defense that Stephanie realized who he was and attacked him, which, given the brutality of the wounds that Stephanie suffered, is absolutely preposterous. And the fact that he's completely uninjured. Two weeks later, 
still in custody, he recants his confession and says it was signed under duress and without an official translator. That doesn't that doesn't really serve him. That doesn't work. That doesn't really help in Peru. And then they're not having it. This is my favorite part of the story. This is why I suggested we cover this episode. I watched this episode on my own and said we we should we have to do this for True Crime TV Club because of this moment. Beth goes to visit him in the Peruvian prison. And she says, and I'm quoting her now, it brought me great joy to walk away from that prison with him in it. And in her perfect Southern bless her heart way, she says, you know, the Chilean prison is far worse than the Aruban prison would have been. So in a way, Joran's in a better place now. <laughs> Which yeah. is a twist on the old saying of saying somebody's in a better a place Peruvian when they prison. passed away. And they show some footage of the prison and it is brutal. It, it looks it like looks a pretty bad. Person. And uh, the Miraflora's father or whatever her name was. Um, what was the, the woman's name? Miraflora? Stephanie Flores. Stephanie Flores. Stephanie Flores. Yeah. Um, Stephanie Flores's um, father was an official of some sort in Peru. So his life can be even made into even more hell because he was found guilty and he is going to spend. Um, he'll be out in 2038. At which time yes. the FBI is poised to have him extradited to the United States to put him on trial for extortion and wire fraud. Yeah, he eventually, Yoren pleads guilty to the murder of Stephanie Flores because what the hell else is he going to do given the evidence against him? Yeah, he's sentenced to 28 years and the FBI will get him. And in 2012, in a very sad grace note on the story, Natalie is declared officially dead by an Alabama court. And but yes, you're right. That moment, I compared it to Sansa's smile. So, remind us what Sansa's smile is from Game the, of Thrones, at the right? Moment, there's a moment in uh, Game of Thrones, if you're a big Game of Thrones fan, where Sansa has been living with her abusive husband for a really long time. He's a terrible man. He has a pack of vicious, bloodthirsty dogs that he has fed a couple of people to already during the course of the, um, the show. And um, there's been a battle... Her, Sansa's family has won. He's put in custody and Sansa turns him over to the dogs. I don't know if she coated him with honey, but they're starving. And there's a moment where the dogs start to go for him and she turns to walk away and she's walking towards the camera as you hear his scream, screams as the dogs begin to tear him apart. And she just pauses there and this Mona Lisa smile crosses her face um, at his horrible fate after all that she has suffered at his hands and, you know, fade to black. It's, it was mm. the Mona Lisa, it was the, the Sansa smile moment of uh, this whole thing because Beth had been put through all of this hell by this horrible sociopathic man, psychopathic man, um, and she gets to see him in this horrible condition. I assume she went there to get him to tell her where the remains were and he wouldn't. Mm-hmm. because it would have involved him co- actually confessing to the crime. And the thing that I was going to say about the father is, I think the father did help him to mm-hmm. dispose of the body. That I do think happened. Mm-hmm. And that's the the mob thing, I'm not so sure of. Maybe there's proof of that and I would be more convinced. But nothing other than that guy saying it, that didn't really prove it for me. And it didn't seem like the sort of... Um, reputation that the guy had but they were prominent citizens in aruba and i think that's why he got to leave the country yeah the father died of of a heart attack i don't know if this is covered in the episode or i i think i saw it later because i did break my rule and look up some details about it the father died of a heart attack while playing tennis 
And I don't know if that was before everything went down in Peru or after, but the father is no longer with us, so he will and never tell his story. And the mom still thinks he's innocent. Yeah, the apparently. mom still thinks because, he's innocent. Because, you know, her mothers always believe in their children. God bless her poor heart. Let, let's, but, yeah, let's what a re- horrible man. A horrible man. Um, let's, let's speculate, though, because I'm intrigued by the point that you brought up early in our episode. If we were to design a new threshold... For when a missing person's cases should be, be when the when the sudden disappearance of someone should be investigated, other than just a, a mere timeline and an age, what would you do? I know I'm putting you on the spot here, but like, what would you say needs to be present for the police to spring into action quicker? I mean, suspicious circumstances. Suspicious circumstances. Yeah. Like if I could show up and say, here are these three guys, here is her getting in this car with these three guys who say that they went there and this is whatever. And kind of she arrived at that point on her own about the 48 hour mark anyway. But if there were some sort of suspicious and extenuating circumstances, that's really, that seems to me to be like, yeah, she hasn't called. She hasn't come home and she was out drinking with her friends and she should, she never does this. Like everybody says that and it's never true. Everybody does stuff they never do all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, right. You know, we're, none of us are automatons. So we, none of us function in a way that's always consistent all the time. So that's not a good, but some sort of exigent circumstances, something that would like, if you, if the police go to a house and, they want to know who's inside or what's, or they want to talk to people, but nobody comes to the door. There's really nothing they can do about it. But if they hear screams or see a big pool of blood on the floor or somebody lying unconscious on the floor inside, they can go in the house because there's something to justify going further. And I would think that's what you'd need. You'd need to, to not just show up hysterical. I can't find cutie pie, but I can't find cutie pie. And she was last seen getting into this car with this stranger Mm-hmm. Um, at this bar that she's never been to. Uh, that to me seems like, well, we can at least run down who that is and ask him where she, they dropped her off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing that she did logically pretty easily, but you would have to bring that evidence yourself. You couldn't just go in and say, why aren't you looking around for them? Because it'd be like, because there's no evidence that they're actually missing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a it's a fascinating point because like I always think and maybe this is a little bit too reductive of me, but, you know, like how could it be abused? Like I'm always trying to give police the benefit of the doubt or homicide detectives. I'm always trying to give homicide departments the benefit of the doubt, because as I always say on the show, I think that they are the vast majority of what they are investigating on a daily basis is so unlike the cases that we cover and we talk about. We're always talking about the rare events, the freak occurrences in terms of murder investigations. Right. It's usually somebody got mad and hit somebody with a firearm and that was the end of that. And if they don't solve that in the first 48, they're never going to solve it. Right. That's the common. But a missing person is a different thing because they will actually say the police will actually say if we don't find a missing person within. And I think there has been strides with this, particularly with children, where it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you don't have to meet this kind of threat anymore but with no. grown adults there ought there has to be some extra special some sort of special circumstance I, mean, I would think because otherwise a grown adult is allowed to go wherever the hell they want to and let me ask this this is what I think so like because a lot of the logic or how the police used to defend their behavior in these cases is a lot of people just don't want to be found 
Yeah. Is that true? Do you believe that, that we have a plague of people in this country who just one day decide to pick up and leave and break off all contact with their loved ones and completely disappear? Well, now, that's that's you're talking past the window of what we're talking about here. For 24 hours, I want to go um, hang out with my married boyfriend and have, um, you know, a hot, hot, sweet, sweet love somewhere in some no-tell motel and not have anybody know where I am. Sure, mm-hmm. that happens, I think constantly it's happening right this minute even now that we're supposed to all be sheltering at home but you know the longer window after the 24 to 48 hours that's i think that's less likely i think people who want to go missing for that length of time that probably is a rarer group and probably going to be more suspicious like faking their death or insurance fraud or something like that and that's probably a much smaller group but that's not really at issue with the 24 hour rule Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. I just, I live in fear, and this is an idea that I put into my Burning Girl books, that we have a, a Hollywoodized view of serial predators as people who want attention or narcissists who want to engage with law enforcement, who want to toy with people, and the idea that there are a lot of them out there who are terrifyingly effective and efficient and, have no, and know how to dispose of the bodies and can be can account for the vast amount of unexplained disappearances that are never solved in this country. Like that's the dramatic alternative I think of to the fact that all these people that have gone mysteriously missing and never been found again, actually decided to just abandon their lives and switch their identities. Or, you know, I don't know. It's just, it's hard for me to wrap my head around that. Where was it? We were watching recently. God, I can't remember. Maybe I was watching it recently. Two people had gone missing. Um, in the same stretch of road. And they were saying that this, you know, that it was somehow this, Ooh, it was haunted and whatever. And it turns out there was a really sharp curve right next to a really deep lake. I never saw this. This is yeah, and they, I know. And both cars, both uh, cars of the missing people were found almost side by side. Wow. In yeah. the lake, right where, along with a bunch of other cars where people had gone off the road and never been heard from again. Like, like there's that, you know, that's I, people I through their own misadventures do things that cause themselves to go missing that just bad choices. I, and I think that's also a part of it, too. Like we I have sometimes because I live in a dense urban area, I have a jaundiced, not a jaundiced view, but an inaccurate view of how populated the earth actually is. There's a lot of. Of places to get lost. A lot of empty in. space. There's a lot of empty lot space. A lot of mean, empty space. Mostly people, empty space. I mean, and there's a, yeah, mostly empty space. The ocean. And I mean, that's the thing. Brian Burrow is the Vanity Fair journalist who's sort of the centerpiece of the interviews for the episode. He says, this was an island. Like, all the searching that they did for Natalie Holloway's body was on the island. And if she was missing, she was probably in the ocean. I mean, finally no they searched for the fisherman hutches, yeah. but she was no longer on the island. So there, I think are, there are a lot of places for humans to have accidents, to get lost in, to get swept away in. You know, yeah. I, I think it's about having a more accurate view of the surface of the earth. Yeah, I think that certainly can help when we move outside of our experience. But when you're upset and somebody hasn't turned up that you were expecting, your immediate response is, you know, like I want everybody to roll out and start doing it. I think with adults, they have to say, well, if it turns out that you still haven't heard from them in this 24 hours isn't that long. Mm-hmm. You know, if you haven't heard from them in this time frame, then maybe there's, you know, some justification. The people in Aruba made it 48 hours because people come there to get drunk and go hook up with whoever and, 
you know, pass out from pina coladas after a night of um, lovemaking in some grass hut by the sea. You know what I mean? Like, that's part of the deal there. And so I can see how they would have, like, the number of people who don't turn up for a day or so because they're out partying is probably a lot higher in that particular environment than, say, you know, Bethesda, Maryland. Right. And this is the second story we've covered where that was a dynamic. The other one was uh, we covered an episode called South of the Border Sins. The murder of Mark Kilroy in the 80s was a similar situation where he was partying in Mexico and he didn't turn up and the police were hesitant to look for him at first because he was in a huge party town where people allegedly go missing all the time and then turn up hungover or sleeping it off on somebody's sofa. So, yeah. And what are the odds of something as horrible as what happened to him happening to anybody else? Because it was so exceptionally horrible that I kind of can't even really believe it. But I do believe it because it did happen. But Jesus Christ. That this is one of those story. impossible questions. What do you think is worse, knowing that something horrible happened to your child or going this long without knowing at all? Without knowing what oh, not knowing. Yeah. Closure is everything, even if it's terrible. Because what your mind can imagine happened to your child is is worse, mm-hmm. you know, than what can happen. And, and your your child that you don't know dies a thousand deaths in your mind every day. Whereas if you know they died the one, even if it was horrible, it's just the one. Right. Whereas with your imagination to run wild. Uh, who knows how many horrible deaths your child has died in 10 years or however long poor Beth has been through this. Like Jesus. Beth has gone on to have kind of a, she's made helping the families of the missing her. My vocation isn't the right word, but her focus, she actually had a season of her own television show on lifetime where she worked with families of missing people to help locate them. I don't know if she has an organization or not. I'm going to look it up because I know. would expect she must have the Natalie Foundation she must, or, yeah. or whatever. The, but yeah, what it, what it an impressive really, person. She really, I did come away from this being astonished by her competence and her ability to hold it together in the midst of what she was going through in that completely strange environment and actually be a very effective advocate Mm-hmm. for her child and for conducting that investigation, her decision to involve the media and the sophistication with which she did that, that was a really smart and accomplished woman mm-hmm. who did Absolutely. that. She was, yeah, she was, she should run for governor of um, Alabama. They could use her. Yeah, Absolutely. So that's it for this installment of Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club. I know. Yeah. I mean, I hope we can do another one when they finally find out what happened to Natalie Holloway. Right. Holloway can have some, I don't know if closure is the right word, but some resolution to the narrative. He's hoping that at some point that son of a bitch um, reveals where she is. And in the meantime, here's hoping, hoping that he's experiencing the full joy of being in prison in Peru. Yeah, enjoy it, Joran. Uh, just a reminder, Facebook, the Facebook page for The Dinner Party Show is where we love to hear from you, and we monitor it constantly and respond to all of your comments. It, also, if you're liking what you're hearing and you're not already also, subscribed, also, I have a headband on right now, so it's making me a little sassy. Yeah, uh, Please sassy. leave us a five-star review on the podcast platform of your choice. And make sure you are subscribed because that helps us here at the TDPS network. Uh, Eric, any final thoughts? (laughs) 
Yeah, you know, never be friends with somebody who blindsides you with open-ended questions that you're not prepared for at the end of your podcast. That's yeah, I my think final that's thoughts. very moving. I think that's beautiful. Until was, next, I'm gonna that, yeah. I'm gonna hold that message in my heart that and close the episode thought. out before Eric comes at me by way of never our never another piece of quiche as long as you live. Oh no, I want your quiche so good. <laughs> not quiche. Your quiche is getting me through the pandemic. <laughs> All right. Until then, enjoy your quiche wherever you are. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.